Good morning. Would you all turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1? Over the next few months as I preach, we will make our way through this entire book, which isn't actually very long, but we're going to go through an entire book by the time I am out of here. And this is a story that is very familiar to all of you. It's the story of the prophet who said no, who was swallowed up by a fish, spit them out of a fish, who sees an entire wicked nation repent, and then who chooses to whine about it. It is a memorable story, and if you're not familiar with it yet, I believe once we're done going through it, it's not one you are soon to forget. It is also a very rich story. And as we go through it together, we're going to come face to face with ourselves, we're going to see God's purposes for us, and we're going to see his great patience and his marvelous mercy on display time and time again. And to make sure we can mine the steps together well, I want to set the stage for us. Because if you're going to mine right, you've got to have all the right tools. So we're going to be equipped with the history and context of the book of Jonah. So first, where are we in the Bible? Well, as a huge flyby, God created the world. Adam and Eve then sinned. He later chose for himself a people with Abram. Then he multiplied them into a nation, gave them a land, established a king. That king died. Another king was raised on and on. Eventually, there was a civil war because a king did something that wasn't very wise. Civil war leads to two kingdoms, and there's a spiral of sin as they go down and down away from the Lord. Eventually, the Lord raises up two nations to destroy these kingdoms and take their people into exile. Because he's gracious, slow to anger, and very merciful, he restores some people back to Israel years later. Then hundreds of years later, Jesus is born, and you have the whole story of the New Testament. We are, yeah, that was a good history, wasn't it? Fast. We are after the Civil War and nearing when the other nations will be raised up to judge Israel. Jonah, in particular, lives at the tail end, getting close to this judgment. And we know this because our prophet is found in 2 Kings 14. And there we can learn a few things about our prophet. First, he's a prophet that has said yes. We remember him as a prophet who has said no, but he knew his God and he served him under a wicked king in the midst of a perverse generation. We also know that Jonah is no stranger to mercy. The word of the Lord he delivers in 2 Kings 14 promised victory to rebellious king who didn't follow after the Lord to a nation who did not follow his laws. He understands what mercy is. Now, where are we in the Bible? Obviously, the story of Jonah isn't found in First or Second Kings. It's in the middle of a collection of books that we call the Minor Prophets. These books are grouped together in the Bible because all 12 of them are united in their message to call people to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord who desires to pour out his loving kindness on them. Like the facets of a well-cut gemstone, like the diamond ring your wife may be wearing, each of these minor prophets plays a part in displaying the grace and the glory of the Lord as they show us the character and the ways of God, 
especially his justice, patience, and great mercy. But Jonah stands out from all these other minor prophets. This book is written as a story, which might be why you remember it more than all the other minor prophets. Unlike them, it isn't a collection of speeches or oracles or poems and proclamations of the Lord. It isn't even like stories in the Old Testament. Think of stories of the prophet Samuel or Elijah or Elisha. In this story, the prophet isn't the hero. He's really the anti-hero and the prophet who runs from the task the Lord gives to him. But this story is grouped with the minor prophets for a reason. Like each of their oracles or their speeches, this story has something to say about particular sins and has a part to play in showing us the character and the ways of God. And this is how God has used the lives of those who fill the whole pages of scripture to point to something greater than themselves. More than just merely the historical details of their lives. So despite its different features, Jonah pictures something greater than himself. And in particular, we're gonna learn this week and over the months to come that Jonah pictures the story of Israel. It pictures your story. And it pictures, or at least plays a part in picturing the story of the one on whom Israel awaits and on whom our salvation depends. God in his wisdom ordained these events led a man to record them in this manner and preserve them for well over 2,000 years for the benefit of you and me today. So as we read, look for these connections. Ask yourself, what is Jonah doing? How does that look like Israel? Where does that look like me? But as you look at that, look for God in the story. Pay attention to him as he interacts with his prophet, the nations, and his creation. And in those actions, you will learn more of his character and his ways. If you walk away with remembering one thing and to see one thing today, I want you to see this. The Lord is greater than great and worthy of your fear, obedience, and praise. Let's turn our attention to the text. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then 
They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, Father, as we continue, would you just be with me? Would you guard my mouth? And would you be so good as you have week after week for generations to feed your people with your word? Let them see your glory and taste the goodness that you give us. Amen. As I previous said, my main point from the text is this. The Lord is greater than great and worthy of all your fear, obedience, and praise. But before anyone can respond with fear, before any obedience, and before any praise, they have to see the truth that the Lord is greater than great. As we walk through the text together, I want to draw three things out to you so that you may see his greatness. And the first, I want you to see his greater than great authority and power. This story begins just like our world began, with the word of the Lord. To quote one commentator, this is a story originated and folded and driven by God's address to his creatures. The whole story is initiated and moved along and shaped by the word of the Lord, without which there'd be no story, no movement, no tension, no flight, and no rescue. There is no meaning to the story, and the events of the story are inconceivable without this word and without the particular deity whose word this is. I said it earlier, I'll say it again, pay attention to him as he interacts with his prophet, the nations, and his creation, because his first words here reveal a good deal about himself and his authority. Look at verse two. It says, this is God speaking, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This statement has a whole lot of inferences and assumptions behind this that both the author and its original audience would have picked up on. They knew the Lord was an all-powerful God who created the world, sustained it with his power. 
they know that he's the source of righteousness and justice and goodness, and that he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. They understood that by his nature, he is the moral authority. He gets to set what is right and wrong and actually revealed it to them. And here in the beginning of our story, the Lord is presented as having authority over this city of Nineveh. But Nineveh isn't just an ordinary city, it is a great city. And that is an intentional word choice. And it's meant to magnify the even greater authority of the Lord. You're gonna see this word choice throughout this chapter, especially with the same intention to magnify the greatness of the Lord. Notice, I don't want you to see the Lord is great. I want you to see he is greater than great. And it's right that assume, it's right to assume that Jonah knows and believes these things. And because he knows and believes these things, it makes it all the more shocking when the prophet of the Lord, who has the authority over all things, disregards his word and runs in the complete opposite direction. Look at verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He runs. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we have seen many a man of God stumble and fall. We've seen reluctant prophets like Moses. We've seen testing judges like Gideon, just to name two. But we have never seen the intentional disregard and turning from the Lord that the prophet gives. This text actually emphasizes Jonah's flight. It's drawing attention to it. The verses continue. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Notice the almost too repetitive use of the word Tarshish. From other biblical texts and archeology, span we know this. It was likely a port city. It was a source of many metals, but most importantly, and why it's mentioned so many times here, it was far away from Israel across the sea. That's really all you need to know. And if you need to imagine it to yourselves, it's like God said, Jonah, go to Canada, call out against it. But then he went down to the airport and bought a ticket going to Brazil. It's the exact opposite direction, everything 180 degrees the wrong way. Jonah runs from a very clear and particular call of the Lord. And in that, in that flight, we can see a picture of both Israel and ourselves. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel has really two clear, oh really, one clear command. It's found in two commandments. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship any idols. Yet time and time again, even as they're waiting to receive the law from Mount Sinai, they turn to idols. They constantly run and flee. And when we read that, it's very tempting to roll our eyes, to groan and go like, again? Don't you remember anything about your history? This didn't go well for you the first time. And they do it again and we groan. But it also pictures us and with a measure of humility and a little bit of the Spirit's help, you should be able to see your own disobedience to the word of the Lord time and time again. So where are you disregarding the word of the Lord? 
You don't always need audible commands. You actually rarely will because he's given us this, his word, where he speaks to us. And we disregard him in particular when we disobey. But Jonah in this passage is running from a very particular call. It's a call to clearly speak God's words to the nations, particularly to the city of Nineveh. And that call is really uncannily similar to one of our clearest calls as New Testament believers. We have the Great Commission. Go therefore to all the nations, making disciples of them. We have Acts 1.8 that calls us witnesses. And what do witnesses do? They bear testimony. And I don't know about you, but most people speak when they bear testimony. In 1 Peter 2, we're called, we're actually, we're told we're saved in order to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. So we should really ask ourselves, are we disobeying the Lord in these things? It's really easy to feel guilt here. I mean, this and prayer, that is sure to stir up the guilt and the conscience of a Christian. But you should really ask yourself, have you left clear sins or have a knowledge of clear sins and left them gone unaddressed in your family, in your friends, in your coworkers? Like it would have been wrong for us not to address the sins of Anthony Howard. Have you been neglecting to call out something equally as clear? Have you had opportunities to speak the great grace of God in your life to others? Like clear softball opportunities. That's like, it's even on a tee. You can hit it right there. Have you turned from them? Have you actually avoided them? If so, you should repent. Or are you even ignoring making the time to talk with someone who the Lord has been burdening you with? You all have those friends or family or you're likely to, to someone you just wish you could share the gospel with. Well, I got good news for you. You can have awkward conversations with a cell phone. You can call them wherever they might be. The call of the Lord is for us and there are ways that we can respond. These are things worth thinking through, they're worth praying through, they're worth talking with our, your brothers and sisters here about. And there can be a lot of false guilt here. You might need to encourage uh, that mother out there. Mother, you might just need to be encouraged. Don't make time for more things. You got four little sinners in your van and they need to hear the gospel daily, multiple times a day. But one of the greatest things that will help us to lean into this particular call of the Lord is to see him to see his greatness, to see that he is greater than great. And when we see that, our fear and love for him outweighs our fear of man when we're feeling nervous about sharing the gospel or how someone might respond. We actually seek to grow in obedience, seeing, you know what, I need to grow in these areas. I'm gonna stumble and walk forward in obedience, trying to get better. And our lips will not have such a hard time speaking about the great things he has done when we see him as truly great. So as Jonah's flight continues in the text, we see the Lord's response. Jonah can run, but he can't hide. His disobedience brings God's judgment. And the Lord responds, in his response, he continues to display his greatness and that he has more power and authority than anything. Because not only is he the moral authority of the nations, he's the one who hurls the wind and makes a storm. See in the text. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. 
This wasn't an ordinary storm that the sailors could navigate through. This wasn't their first voyage. They knew how to sail through rough waters, but their ship was on the brink of breaking. They were throwing their cargo overboard and their cargo was their profit. That's why they were on a trip. They were fearing for their lives. They're at the point, they're praying to any and all gods that might hear them and help them survive this storm. They are desperate and it's Jonah's fault. And do you know where he is? In the bottom of a boat, sleeping like a baby, a good baby. (laughs) Thinking he has successfully run from the Lord. And that is backwards. And I wanna acknowledge that point in particular. Jonah is an Israelite. He's one of, he's a chosen person of God and they have a purpose and that's to be a light to the nations. But he's the reason they're about to be destroyed. The light is, you know the song, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna let it shine. This is Jonah hiding it all under the bushel in the bottom of the boat. And the captain finds him. He goes, what do you mean, you sleeper? He goes, what are you doing? Wake up, pray. We're gonna die. Maybe your God will hear us. But still, Jonah obviously wakes up, but he's silent. He doesn't say a thing. There's no evidence that he calls out to God at all. And that's sad. Because again, he's a light to the nations. He's also God's prophet who ought to be speaking, who is still silent. He's the only one in the boat who knows the name of the God who saves. And brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of that. Many times a week, we are in a room where we are the only person on the boat who knows the name of the one who saves. The scriptures are really clear. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they know who to call on if they've never heard of him? As chapter four will reveal to us uh, in a few months, I think Jonah understands this. And this is one of the factors that causes him to flee from the call of God. And at the end of the day, Jonah does not seem to be very concerned for the plight. He's resigned himself to death in the storm and it will take the very hands of God to make him speak and to reveal to these sailors the name of the one who has brought the storm upon them. That brings me to my second point. I want you to see his greater than great mercy. He is the God who saves. The Lord continues to display his greater than great authority and power over all things as he deals with this disobedient prophet and orders events to bring about the salvation for everyone in the boat. And at this point in the story, the sailors are at the end of their ropes. They have nothing left to do. Despite their throwing things overboard, their prayers and their cries, they are still sinking. So as a last resort, they turn to the casting of lots. It's almost funny, they cast everything overboard and the last thing they're left with is casting lots, seeing by divine providence what this is. If you don't know what a lot is, it's really similar. If you're playing a you're rolling the dice, seeing who gets to go first. Uh, 
It's a common practice in the ancient Near East. It might have been tiles or stones of different colors, but they'd cast them, and there'd be a predetermined pattern that says, this is yes, or this is no, or this is the answer we look for. And it's no surprise to us as both the readers and the one who believes in a God of great power that the lots fall on Jonah. He's the main actor in the story. He judges the nation. He hurls storms on the seas. It's a very small thing for him to make sure tiles or dice or stones lay the right way time after time after time. Proverbs 16.33 actually affirms this very expressly. You don't have to take my word for it. It says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is the Lord's. And you should see from this that it is the hand of the Lord that reveals Jonah's guilt, not really his guilty conscience. And it's the Lord's hand that leads this boat one step closer to their salvation. Because as is natural in these circumstances, the sailors bombard Jonah with a torrent of never-ending questions, trying to figure out what is going on. They go, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? What did you do? And uh, how do we fix this? And Jonah answers. His answer has a lot in it. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this is really the turning point of our story. The sailors now know who they are dealing with, a greater than great God named the Lord, Yahweh, who rules in the heavens, who made the very sea that is raging against them and the dry ground they are desperately hoping to see again. And you can see in verse 10 that they are first response is the right one. They were exceedingly afraid. And they were actually horrified by the fact that Jonah dared to flee from the presence of one so great. And Jonah seems then to tell his story, admits responsibility for the storm due to his flight, and apparently aware of his sin, he answers honestly about what they must do to be saved from the storm. He knows they must cast him into the sea, that really he deserves death. And it's only when that happens that they are going to live. Now, the sailors clearly acknowledging that this storm is from the Lord, they're rightfully awed by him, they should listen to him, but Jonah's not necessarily the most trustworthy of character here. So it's not very surprising that they do not follow his counsel or take his advice. He's not very great. I wouldn't trust him either. What if Jonah's wrong? What if killing this Lord's prophet isn't what the Lord wants? He's running from him. He could be lying right now. And they want to be rid of the Lord's wrath. They want to be saved. Maybe killing this prophet by throwing him into the sea might bring more of it on their head. So maybe, just maybe, they can turn their boat around and paddle back to shore and maybe the storm will get calmer and they'll be able to bring Jonah back to his God. But as the text reveals, as they frantically paddle back toward Joppa, the storm increases in its severity. You shouldn't see this as coincidence. 
or just how the storm is playing out, you should see this as a deliberate part of the story and a conscious act of the Lord to thwart the efforts of these sailors. The Lord is the one who saves. And if the Lord, I mean, if the sailors are going to be saved, it's going to be the Lord who does it on his terms. And he has said through his prophet, the storm will only be calmed if Jonah is thrown into the sea. So the sailors are left with a decision. Their rowing is doing nothing. They're at the end of themselves. Their only chance at life is to treat the words of the prophet Jonah as the very words of the Lord and obey them if they hope to live. They must in a way act in faith. They have to put their hope in the death of Jonah as being the right answer. And they have to put themselves really at the mercy. Like the captain says, who knows? Perhaps this God will give us a thought. They're really at the mercy of this God who they have just learned about. And this is exactly what they do. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And as the sailors call out to the Lord for salvation, they do so with really humility and a holy fear. They obey him, not because they want to kill Jonah. They actually go out of their way to make sure that they're not gonna bear Jonah's guilt. But they obey him still because they see him as greater than great, greater than the storm. And what else do they have to do? So as Jonah sinks beneath the waves, the storm ceases and the sailors are saved. And what's the proper response to that? But praise, that's what's mean by offering a sacrifice and vows. You see that throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms, that this is what it means to praise the Lord. In this story, it's the sailors who illustrate really the main point. If the Lord is greater than great and we see that, he's worthy of our fear, obedience, and praise. And it's the Gentiles in the story instead of the prophet who demonstrates the right response to that. But there's another thing you can see from this. God's the only one who can save you. To see this most clearly, you need to know something. Jesus himself makes explicit comparisons or references to Jonah on multiple occasions throughout the gospel. You have Matthew 16, Luke 11, Matthew 12, Mark 8. You even have a really similar story, Jesus calming a storm and a storm that looks a lot like this in the book of Jonah. In Matthew 12, 21, Jesus says with his own lips, one greater than Jonah is here. And I hope to reference these texts later. I even in particular hope to explore more of what the sign of Jonah is and what it means and how Jesus wields with that. But for now, I just wanna mention Jesus' own references so that the comparison between these two men isn't jarring or shocking. Remember, God has used the lives of those who fill the pages of scripture to point to something much greater than the mere historical details. And I believe that the similarities between Jonah and Jesus are intended by God. And when we make these comparisons, rightly, we're reading the book of Jonah exactly how our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, read this book. If we can see in the story that God is the only one who can save you, and we get a picture of his greater than great mercy, even extended to us. 
You can't start doing better. Works can't save you. The sailors tried to row, but it was futile. They couldn't get anywhere. And remember, you're just like Jonah, how you debate, disobeyed the word of the Lord, how you're worthy of his judgment. You may still be running from him even now. And in your running, you might not even realize that there is a great storm of eternal judgment on the horizon coming that will bring your doom and cast you into the waves of sin and death. Unless another one is cast in there for you. To quote Tim Keller, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. And that storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away. To use the words of Paul, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would die. But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jonah being cast into the waves is a picture He's no perfect sacrifice, but as he descends into the waves, he shows us that Jesus was our scapegoat and really went to the place and bore the wrath that we deserved so that we might have life. Do you see it? Do you see that greater than great mercy that's extended to you? We deserve to be wiped out by a storm. But you today, many of you have, but many of you still can call on the name of the Lord just like these sailors, and be saved from the storm that's threatening to des destroy you. And unlike these sailors, when you do so, you'll be indwelled by a spirit. You'll gain victory over sin. And if that's already true of you, my goodness, why can't we speak of it more? We should. It should fill us with joy about how great he is and how marvelous his mercy has been to us. Amen. That's great. But some of you are here tired and weak and distracted by other storms of your life. You've been saved from the greatest storm, but you feel weak. And I want you to know that the God who saves is still the God who hears. You can call to him once for your salvation. You can still call to him today and tomorrow for his mercies. They're new each morning. You can continue to call out to him. You should go read Lamentations 3 later today. Because man, he calls out, but he says, he says the steadfast of the Lord never ceases, even in the midst of his sorrow and his grief. The Lord is your portion, just like it is Jeremiah and Lamentations. And I want to keep exploring the connections and conclude here with the third point. I want you to see the Lord's greater than great wisdom. The Lord has worked throughout history and this story to bring his promises and purposes to pass. As the rest of the book of Jonah will reveal to us, God chose and commissioned Jonah to be a blessing to the nations. This has always been the purpose of God's chosen people since all the way back to the call of Abram. In Genesis 12, here's those verses. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you 
and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is why later in Exodus 19, Israel is described as a kingdom of priests. They got the Levites, but they're all priests proclaiming who their Lord is. As we've seen in this chapter, Jonah balks at this call. He flees from the Lord and pretty much does everything but that. But the Lord, in all of his greatness, was able to even use a rebellious, stubborn, fleeing prophet as an unwitting servant to make his name known among the Gentiles and to even save a boatload of them. And do you know what's even more incredible? The Lord appointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah. He's not done with his people yet. And Jonah illustrates what will then happen to Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. They're gonna be swallowed up by nations and for a season, they're gonna live apart and a remnant of them will be restored one day. But also notice three days and three nights remind you of someone? If his name's Jesus, you have the right answer. We should look forward to that. And this is the greatness of the Lord. To use the words that the Lord himself describes himself with in Exodus 14, he's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's true to you who have called out on him. You should believe it. Jonah's flight and his time in the belly of the whale is a picture. But like Jonah, the belly of the fish, the Lord preserves a remnant. And do you know why all that's true? Because he keeps his promises and he fulfills his purposes. He's got a plan from the beginning. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus isn't just a greater Jonah. He is the faithful son of Israel. He's the greater Israel. He is the root of Jesse, the promised king from the line of David. He is the promised seed of the woman promised so long ago to Adam and Eve as they were cast from the garden. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He is a great fulfillment of all the promises and purposes throughout history. Through him, all families of the earth, all nations can draw near to the Lord, the creator, again. See his greatness. See it throughout the history of time, but see in the story how he's, he has greater authority, greater power than any you could dream of. See how his mercy is greater and not only saving those who the storm threatened to destroy and the sailors, but even the one who rebelled against him. And then see that mercy extended to you because of his great faithfulness to answer his promises and fulfill his purposes. That's the Lord. And when you see him rightly, you will be spurred with a right, holy fear. You will delight in obeying his commands and your lips will not just praise him here, but speak of him 
in your workplace, in your homes, and to all those you meet. Let's pray. Father, even, even as you've used the songs and prayers and truth in this sermon today to help us to worship, would you, would you really bring it to our lives? Would, even if we've seen you today in the text, would you help us to see you each day as we open up the word and you give us our daily bread? Would you help us to remember these things and talk about these things so that we would grow in obedience that more more people would be saved, especially in the city of Louisville. Amen.